have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me this morning to uh, the book of James, chapter 2. Uh, we want to continue our thoughts that we have introduced the last couple of weeks on a proper biblical perspective for us uh, in viewing some of the Old Testament, Testament characters. Uh, the Old Testament characters of the Bible were indeed uh, men blessed of God. But lest we think that they were blessed of God because they were uh, such super righteous individuals, uh, we've also taken time to look at the fact that many of them had problems, the same problems that you and I have. The purpose for this is, number one, I don't, I don't think America or the world as a whole, but especially in America, uh, people have the proper perspective of themselves. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you pick up a newspaper, uh, every time you read a magazine, they're always asking the question, especially in the sports world, who's the greatest of all time? Who's the greatest person? Who's the best person? Who's better than everybody else? Uh, and we're, we're constantly arguing and, and trying to answer that question from a natural physical perspective. Well, I realize that there is, there is a time where one particular sports player may be better at this time than anybody that we know right now. But this just kind of shows you the ignorance of human beings. He's the greatest of all time. In the entire time that the world has existed, this is the best person playing this sport, coaching this team, running this business, so forth and so on. So, Part of the ignorance is you're telling me that you have full and complete knowledge of all people who have existed throughout all time to tell me that right now in 2021 we have a person who's the greatest of the last 6,000 years of human history? You see how foolish that is. Lest we think, though, that these men of the Old Testament were somehow super people, they didn't have problems with sin, they didn't have trouble with sin in life. That's the purpose for looking at these things. That's the purpose for having these messages, to, to try and remind us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, as we read in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. But let every man think soberly. The men in the Old Testament, the women in the Old Testament that were greatly, greatly blessed of God were not blessed of God because they had abilities better than other people. They were blessed of God because God blesses people. That's just, that's just the way it is. We, we today are blessed of God because God is good and God blesses people. God has given me a gift to preach. He has not given me a gift to preach because I'm just such a wonderful person. He's given me a gift to preach because He's a good God and a giver of good gifts. In James chapter 3, there's a verse in here about a man named Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's essentially, though, the father of the promised seed, 
Isaac, through whom Jesus Christ would come. Abraham is a man that is honored by both Jews and Christians and even Muslims. Abraham in James chapter 2, verse 23 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. It's possible in our life for us to encounter people, have uh, an interaction with people, and go away from a meeting and say, well, I, I have a friend in this person. And maybe years later down the road where you may need something and you call upon this person, say, hey, uh, I, I need a favor from you. And they say, now, who are you? Do I know you? It, it is possible for us to think that we have a relationship with people that we don't have. That relationship is only in our mind. It'd be one thing to think you had a relationship with God and didn't. But I can't think of any greater friend to have than the God of glory. And when the Bible says that Abraham was the friend of God, this statement alone, this statement alone is a powerful statement if you understand where the statement comes from. If you lay out the teaching of Christianity versus the teachings of paganism or the teachings of Gnosticism, to say that Abraham is a friend of God, that is strictly a Christian concept. The agnostics who believed in all sorts of deities, the pagans that believed in all sorts of deities, believe that there is something out there. There is some supreme being maybe out there somewhere. But he is too pure, too good, and too holy to interact personally with anybody on the earth. There's a separation between the humans and the gods. They may interact in a roundabout way, but they'll never interact directly, physically, or personally. Everything about that statement you understand is different in Christianity. God not only interacted personally with Abraham, but he interacted physically when he came down to this earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And they beheld him. They touched him. He beheld them. He touched them. He interacted with them. To say that Abraham was the friend of God, is a truly baffling expression. The scripture here says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, there's a doctrinal point that we need to make about this. Um, churches are filled today and will be filled till Christ comes back uh, with ministers telling people that if you don't believe in God, you're going to go to hell. Because when Abraham believed God, he became a child of God. I have a problem with that statement. 
The main problem I have with this statement is just specifically where this verse comes from in the life of Abraham. In the life of Abraham, this verse comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when Abraham had asked the Lord, uh, how I don't have a son to be an heir to my house. How shall I know that thou shalt give me a son? Will thou give me an heir to be an heir to my house? And God made a promise to him that I would visit you, I would visit Sarah in the appropriate time, and I will bless her to have a son. And it says that Abraham believed in God in Genesis 15. You say, well, that's, that's the point that Abraham's relationship began with God, right? The person that makes that statement, they're skipping three and a half chapters in Abraham's life. If at that point in Genesis 15, when Abraham believed in God and he became a child of God, I find that odd that you go back to Genesis 12 that starts with the life of Abraham and you find the man being led by God out of the Ur of Chaldees into a land that God would show him. And everywhere that Abraham went, he set up an altar here, an altar there, an altar here. The only place that Abraham did not set up altars when he was when he went down into the land of Egypt. No altars in the land of Egypt. He came back out of Egypt, and everywhere he went, altar, 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 altar. I find it odd that if Genesis 15 is the beginning of Abraham's spiritual life, when he believed in God, that you would find a wicked, reprobate, unregenerate person in Genesis 12, 13, and 14, setting up altars and worshiping God. Isn't that a little backwards to you as well? No, what this text means is exactly what it says. When Abraham believed God, when it was a public profession, that was counted to him in the fact that it showed he was righteous. It didn't make him righteous. It showed something had already been done in his life and belief and following God are evidences of spiritual life, not the causes of it. As a matter of fact, when he says here that Abraham was called the friend of God, turn with me backwards to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41 And verse 8, Isaiah 41 and verse 8, he says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. See, it's one thing for me to say, I have a friend, and this person may not even remember that I existed. It's something completely different for God Almighty to say, I have a friend, his name is Abraham. I'd like for you to notice also, here's, here's a little Bible study that you can do. He says, uh, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Uh, is that the physical person, Jacob? Jacob been dead a thousand years by this time, right? The name Jacob and the nation of Israel are often synonymous. They're used interchangeably oftentimes later on in the Old Testament Scriptures. When God refers to Israel, he also refers to them as Jacob, as one person or as a nation. So don't think that this is something that just only applied to somebody way back then. This was a, there was a promise that was made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and that promise has been carried down throughout the centuries to even you and me right now. 
we have the same promises, the same covenant, the same agreement, and the same blessings that Abraham had way back in that day because we all have the same God. Here, Abraham, my friend. Uh, if you turn to Second Chronicles, again addressing this issue of the friend of God, Second Chronicles chapter uh, 20 and verse 7. He says, Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? So I, I think the Scriptures is replete, reminding us that God considered Abraham his friend. Now, just in considering that Abraham was the friend of God, you say, well, good, he's the friend of God. What does that mean? What, what benefit is that to have a friend in God? Turn to Genesis 20. Excuse me, it's not, it's not 20. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's, uh, it's Genesis 18. Kind of getting in the middle here of the life of Abraham. We're kind of, we'll go back here in a minute and kind of catch up with some of this. But in Genesis 18, uh, God had appeared unto Abraham. Three men appeared unto Abraham. God appeared unto Abraham. The Lord appeared unto Abraham. I don't care how you want to look at it. God is standing here before Abraham at his tent. God is headed to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy these wicked cities. But notice what he says in Genesis 18 and verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? You know, uh, there's another passage in the Scriptures, I believe it's in the book of Jeremiah, where it says that the secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children. And you know, there's a lot of people that spend a lot of time trying to pry into God's secret box. They try to pry into the hidden stuff and the things that they don't know when they hadn't even taken time to deal with the things they do know. But notice what he says here. He says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's going to deal with Abraham in a way that he doesn't deal with a lot of the other nations or the people around them. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? In the book of Psalms, chapter 20, uh, 25, I'd like for you to notice this verse. Psalm 25 and verse 14. Psalm 25 and verse 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. And He will shew Him or shew them His covenant. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. 
How can you and I sit here in this day, this day of economic disaster, this day of political upheaval, this day when you walk down through the grocery aisles and this shelf is empty and that shelf is empty and this other shelf is empty, while the powers that be are telling us everything is fine, your eyes are telling you we're not building back better. It's worse than it was this time last year. Anybody with enough sense to lick a postage stamp knows that's true. You say, well, people don't lick postage stamps anymore. I guess the government found out there weren't there were people who didn't have enough sense to lick one, so they made them self stick them no lick them stamps, right? Um, how can you and I though sit here in this day and age and be at peace? Because we've got the secrets to the end of the world, and the secret to the end of the world is God wins. Regardless of how bad it is right now, God wins. And our time that we spend in all of eternity is nothing. This life is nothing to be compared with the time that we will spend in all of eternity at the throne of God. Notice also here, hearing this idea, turn to John 15. Abraham said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing I do? Notice John 15. John 15 and verse 15. He says, henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. And, and that, is, that is true. I don't walk into my boss's office and say, all right, boss, how are you spending your money today? Do you all do that? I don't walk into my boss's office and pry into every little thing the boss is doing. Oftentimes the boss just hands me a piece of paper and says, go do this, and that's what I'm supposed to go do. He says, I call you not servants. The servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you Friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. There's a lot of people that live their life in secret. They don't want to tell anybody anything. They don't want to confide in anybody. They don't want to talk to anybody. Now, <clears throat> part of that... Part of living life in secret and not telling people anything is because you don't trust the people you're around. But, yeah, we, we know that. We've grown up in, we grew up in school. And a little rumor go around school, a little whispered start going around in the little playground. And the rumor went around the playground because one child said to another child, now, don't tell nobody this. And they promised, I won't tell anybody. And before you long, the whole school knew about it. That generates mistrust in people. And that even applies sometimes to churches. There comes a point where the things that happen 
within the four walls of this congregation belong only to the four walls of this congregation. It's nobody else's business when you're dealing with sensitive issues because nobody else really can help you if you're just gossiping about the issue. See what we're talking about? It's important that you trust the people that you're around. But there's also a reason that a lot of people don't want to confide in other people. They don't want to talk to other people. is because they don't want to be talked out of what they already want to do. There's a reason a lot of people keep in secret. They do things. They don't tell their mama. They don't tell their daddy. They don't talk to other people around them because they don't want to be talked out of what they already want to do. I've found in uh, counseling sometimes that people will tell you just enough about their situation that you come to the same conclusion they did so you'll agree with what they did. That's, that's not healthy for anybody to live like that. Jesus says, called your friends, and the way that you know you're my friend is I'm going to tell you what's happening. I'm going to tell you what we're doing. I'm going to tell you where we're going. Now, they did not often understand what Jesus was doing, where he was going, or what he was saying. Specifically, when he told them, I shall be delivered into the hands of wicked men, crucified, and three days later, I'll rise again. When he told them that he'd be delivered in the hands of wicked men and killed, they stopped listening. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Not so. Though all men shall forsake thee, though all men shall leave thee, I shall stand with thee always. You don't have to die. And Peter didn't listen to what Jesus said was, three days later, I'll rise again. Several weeks ago, we had, we had Bobby's funeral. And uh, after the funeral was over, we're all gathered around the graveside talking and speaking. And uh, some of the people there were picking the roses off of the uh, flower arrangement that was on top of the casket. And I thought to myself, those are pretty flowers. I bet my, lot, my wife would like to have one. So I picked it and came home. Walked into the living room, and she was like, so sweet, what's the occasion? I said, I was at a funeral today and thought of you. That's kind of a left-handed compliment, isn't it? Now, all y'all heard was the word funeral. Did you think that I meant by that that I wish she was dead? Or that I thought of her and was glad she was alive? Ah, see there? It's interesting. And when I put that on Facebook, I had a lot of people saying, God, bless that poor woman that has to deal with you on a regular basis. And I thought, this is an interesting psychological evaluation of human nature. I didn't tell people exactly why I said it. I just put it out there and I let them draw their own conclusions. Well, I thought of her and I was glad she was alive. I'll have you know. But it's still fun. You've got to look for the humor in life. So when Jesus says, I shall be killed, 
three days later, resurrected. Yeah, let's do the whole thing. Yeah, let's do the whole story. Jesus told them exactly what they needed to know. Why? Because we are his friends. Abraham was the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, there's no way that I could be called the friend of God because I am a mess. I'm like Paul. I find in myself, in my flesh, no good thing. For what I would do, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Well, I assure you that though Abraham was called the friend of God, <clears throat> Abraham had a problem. Abraham was a mess. And his problem not only was his problem, it was also Isaac's problem, and it was also Jacob's problem. So let's look here. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham, and he says to him in Genesis 12 and verse 1, Get thee up out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. God is already establishing in Abraham's life uh, that the leading of Abraham's steps comes from God Almighty. Get up, let's go somewhere, and along the way, I'll show you where you're going. Now, I've always had a question about this, and I'll just leave this question with you. Uh, God told Abraham to get out of his father's house and unto a land. In this text, in the next few verses, you're going to find out that Abraham not only left his father's house, but he took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and a bunch of his servants and a bunch of things and, and left the house. And I've often wondered, was Abraham just supposed to leave alone? Did he take a bunch of baggage with him that complicated his journey? Abraham departs. He takes Sarah, and here's the first time in Abraham's journeying that we find going down to the land of Egypt. It says here uh, in verse 10 of chapter 12 that there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Uh, how many times do we find in Scripture where there's a famine in the land and people leave? Uh, Naomi and Elimelech in the book of Ruth, there was a famine in the land, and they left. There was a famine in the land, he left. There was a famine in the church, and everybody left. Uh, there are no young people, so everybody leaves. Well, if there are no young people and you leave, then there will no be. Then there will never be any young people. Sometimes it takes young people to hang around so there will be young people. That's not that hard to figure out, but it is very hard to do because you're going to find out there are two things wrong with Abraham in his life. I guess I'll go ahead and tell them to you. Abraham, number one, was impatient, and number two, he was a liar. I guess I'll go ahead and just let the cat out of the bag. Abraham and Sarah were impatient, and Abraham was a liar. Those were the two biggest problems that Abraham had in his life. Nobody in here has that problem, do they? Nobody raising their hands? Bunch of liars. All right. Here it says that Abraham journeyed down into Egypt to sojourn there. And it's in Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1 where it says, Woe unto those that go down into Egypt 
for help. You have a crisis. You have a problem. First thing that people want to do is turn to some counselor of the world to solve their problems. Anytime you turn to a counselor of the world to solve your problem, you're headed in the wrong direction. If you're a child and you have a problem, the first person you're supposed to turn to are your parents. This is God's biblical chain of authority. If you have a problem, go to your parents. If you're a parent or husband or wife and you have a problem, the first person you're supposed to go to is your pastor. When you don't go to your parents and you don't go to your pastors, you go to the wrong people. You step outside of God's chain of authority and usually terrible things happen. God's chain of authority in the home is the husband is the head of the wife and the parents are the head of the children. It doesn't mean that the husband is greater than the wife. It doesn't mean that the husband is better than the wife. It just means that somebody has got to be in authority. You both can't drive the car at the same time. Though he may drive and she tells him how to drive. There's another story for that, but that's another time. You can't drive the car at the same time. And it doesn't mean the person in the passenger seat is any less important than the person in the driver's seat. But our world thinks everything's got to be equal. you got two people, so two steering wheels, right? Wrong. Anytime that chain gets disrupted and the wife starts leading the husband and commanding the family, your house is headed for trouble. This is just that way in God's Word. So Abraham, during this time of famine, went down into the land of Egypt. And here's here, Abraham looks at his wife. Now, he says, they're going to see how pretty you are, and they're going to want to take you from me, so you tell them you're my sister, not my wife. I'd like you to know, uh, later on in the book, we find out that this is, this is actually half true. Sarah is the daughter of Abraham's father, but not the daughter of Abraham's mother. So she's his half-sister. So this is a half-life, which makes it all wrong. But he gets down here in this land, and he says, they're going to see how pretty you are. So you tell them you're my sister so they won't kill me. Really? That's okay with you? I mean, that... You read through the Old Testament, there, were, there was a battle and there were two kings. And who was the king that said, I know they're searching for my life, so I'm going to dress up as a regular person. And he told this other king, you dress up like me. And the other king said, okay. I mean, how dumb do you have to be to agree to something like that? Well, Sarah says, okay. Not realizing that once they find out she's just the sister and not the wife, they're going to take her anyways. And when Pharaoh takes her, it says here in verse 17, now, he simply took her into his harem, that nothing had occurred yet. There had been no marriage. There had been no consummation of the marriage. He simply took her into his harem. There's probably a plan to put her in the marriage harem, but it hadn't occurred yet. He brings her into the house, and in verse 17 it says, The Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
I wonder how many problems we're having in America because of this. Because people don't know how to keep their hands to themselves when it comes to somebody else's husband or wife. In Genesis 13, we find the result of Abraham going down into the land of Egypt. Uh, if you go ahead and you read chapter 12, you'll realize that Abraham came out with two things. He came out with great riches, and he came out with a woman named Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. Now, his great riches afflict him in chapter 13 because he's a rich man, and now his nephew Lot, they're also rich men. They're also great cattlemen, and there's not enough space in the plains for both of them to dwell. They're having a fight. They're having a problem. So Abraham tells Lot, he says, look, there's no reason for us to fight about this. We be brethren. Choose the plain or choose the mountain, Lot. You make your choice. Wherever you go, I will go to the other place. And Abraham, uh, Lot looked at the mountain and said, I don't really want to live in the mountains. I'm going to dwell out here in these fruited plains. And it says in, in chapter 13 that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. That's where Lot started going downhill. He pitched his tent towards Sodom for the lights and the bright shininess of the city. Uh, I, I've heard it time and time and time again since I've moved here to Birmingham from other people. This is such a dull, dumb town. Ain't nothing to do around here. If you'll just be patient a little bit and you get married and have you a couple of children, you'll have plenty to do. If you just settle down and stop looking at the lights of the city and start looking at the light of the Lord, you'll have plenty to do. And as a matter of fact, moving from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we grew up in Atlanta, where there's eight lanes of traffic everywhere, and everything in Atlanta is 45 minutes from Atlanta, I kind of like being here. I marvel at some people who say, there's so much traffic in town. Really? Let us journey just a little eastward to a city where there's traffic, where rush hour starts at about 6.30 in the morning and it ends at about 7.45 at night. Rush hour starts here where? About 7 o'clock? It'll usually end around 8.30 or 9. And then it starts again about 4.30 and ends of maybe about 6, 5.30 here. Well, y'all got it easy. Why? Because this is a dull, boring town, I guess. Ain't nothing to do. Well, Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom because there's plenty to do in Sodom. Now, that wasn't really part of the message this morning. but I'll give you that one for free. How about that? Make that deal. Um, Lot's down there in the city of Sodom, and in chapter 14, uh, this is called the Battle of the Kings. There's a group of kings that get together. And they wage war against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They go down there and besiege it. And they ransack the city, take the people hostage. And the people that they take hostage, part of them, are Lot and all his wealth. Abraham is such a uh, rich, accomplished man that when he hears that his nephew Lot has been kidnapped, he, he takes 318 uh, trained soldiers that were born in his house. You catch that phrase? The Bible says 
that Abraham yoked up 318 trained soldiers that were born in his house. How mighty do you have to be to have 318 families or maybe there's two children per family, you know, however you do the math. He's got 318 trained soldiers born in his family. He yokes them up, goes down, whips all these kings, gets Lot, gets the spoil, and comes back. And on his way back home, he runs into Melchizedek. Melchizedek, one of the most mysterious characters in all the Old Testament. And is blessed of Melchizedek, whom most people think that Melchizedek is a hearing of the Lord Christ in the Old Testament. You would think that this person, Abraham, having all these uh, conquests, all this, he wouldn't have another problem in life, right? He'd be able to straighten it out and fly right. Abraham is is given a promise in chapter 15 uh, that God will bless him with a son. And this is the dividing of the animals that we have read about. And God assures him that I will bless you with a son. Let's divide these animals. I will walk through this. I will perform this covenant to you by myself. This is an assurance that I will do this. And it's in Genesis 15 that it says that Abraham believed in God. But did you ever notice that in Genesis 15 where it says that Abraham believed in God, in James chapter 2 it didn't say that Abraham believed in God. It said Abraham believed God. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. Abraham again has the trouble with lying. After God destroys the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham comes out on his balcony or his front porch, whatever you want to call it, and he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah and he sees this great cloud of smoke coming up. He sees that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. The problem that Abraham has is he doesn't know if Lot's gotten out. He knows that Lot was down there. He interceded for Lot in in Genesis 18, but he doesn't know if Lot's gotten out or not. So now we find in Genesis 20 that Abraham journeyed uh, between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. And in Genesis chapter 20, He is again in front of a king. He came to King Abimelech. And you know what he told his wife Sarah? Guess what he told his wife Sarah in Genesis 20. They're going to see that you're my my wife. Tell them you're my sister again. The same situation again. But we have a different problem than we had before. When Abraham told the lie in Genesis 12... He'd not been given the promise that God would bless Sarah with a promised seed. Catch that? Genesis 12, when that occurred, the promise of the promised seed had not been promised. But when you get to Genesis 20, the promise of the promised seed has now been promised. And you know what Abraham's just done? Not only has he put his wife in trouble, but he's also put in jeopardy the promise of the promised seed. Because the promised seed was to come from God, not some other man. And now she's down here in Abimelech's harem. And God intervenes again. God intervenes 
because he's more sure about carrying his promise than he is about anything else in your life. God is sure that he will carry out his promise. Well, I told you earlier that Abraham was also impatient. When God promised him in Genesis 15 that he would have a son, a period of time passes. I think it might have been about 10 years from when God made the promise to Abraham that I will visit, I will return, I will bless Sarah with a son, and she will conceive through you and her at the marriage bed. She will conceive and bring forth a son. Time passes, and Abraham and Sarah get together, and they say, well, ain't nothing happening. So Sarah says, well, I've got a handmaid over here, Hagar, you know, the one we brought back from, from being down there in Egypt. Go in unto her, marry her, she will bring you forth a son, and that will be the promise. And God says, that's, that's not what I want. He brings out of Egypt a second wife. He brings out of Egypt wealth. It caused him great trouble. And the reason he has Hagar is he was an impatient person. He and Sarah got together and said, the Lord needs help. The Lord can't do this on His own. He's got to have our help. Y'all y'all never heard that statement, have you? And Hagar and Abraham and Sarah, they, they get together and they come up with this idea that help God out because they are impatient I know none of y'all are impatient, right? We all have the tendency to do that. I told you earlier that Abraham had a problem. He had a problem of lying. It was not only his problem, it was his son's problem as well. In Genesis chapter 26, Genesis chapter 26 and verse 6, it says that Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Wait a minute. Doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't I just read y'all that in Genesis 20? That Abraham get dealt, dwelt in Gerar? And Abraham told Abimelech, she's my sister. Abimelech had to find out Abraham was lying. Genesis 26. Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, she's my sister. wonder where he learned that from. Listen, I don't think he learned that from his father. I don't think his father sat him down and taught him this. You know what I think? I think like father, like son. The reason that you have been able to figure out some of the dumb things your children do in life is because you did the very same dumb things. And we try and warn them and they think, oh, you're just trying to get in my business. No, I'm trying to save you from the pitfalls and the troubles and the trials that I went through. But I'm dumb and I don't know anything, right? If you're going to reject the teaching of people around you because the people around you are a mess, you might as well reject the entire Bible. Because the same people who are instructing you in the Bible what to do and what not to do are the same people who are a wreck and a mess themselves. And I, 
when you look at this issue, Isaac does the same thing. And, of course, we know the story of Jacob, right? Jacob was just an all-out liar. Lied to his daddy that stole his brother's birthright, stole his brother's blessing. All by lying. Has it ever has it ever been a puzzle to you as to when you read the gross sins of the New Testament, especially when we were over there in the book of Revelation a couple months ago? It told you that all whoremongers and all adulterers and all fornicators and all liars will find themselves in the lake of fire. Um, have you ever wondered why that is? You ever wonder why the term why lying is in there? Well. God is truth. God is a God of truth. And lying itself was the very first charge against the character of God. When God told Adam, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, the devil comes right behind it, and essentially what he said was, God is lying. You're not going to die. He doth know in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt uh, thou shalt not die, but thou shalt be as gods. He's lying to you, and he's holding out on you. Lying was the first character charge against God. Turn with me to the book of Acts. A lot of times, our preachers have turned their guns loose on drunkenness and fornication and sins like that. There's something that bothers me. Well, there's a lot of things that bother me, but sometimes I hesitate to say that from the pulpit, but let me just say this. I've gone into a couple of churches and somebody will say, you know, we've got a good family here, we've got good members here, here's a family over here, they're just one of the best ones here, they, they attend every Sunday, but they can't be members because they're divorced and remarried under unscriptural reasons. First question I want to ask is, what business is that of mine? Why are you telling me about these people? What business is that of mine? Second, it seems in my life, the worst sin you can do is get divorced and remarried. People have more problems with that than anything. Do you ever notice that the Lord never really dealt with people under that issue in the New Testament? He never struck anybody dead in the New Testament for adultery or divorce and remarriage. However, in Acts chapter 5, He did strike a couple of people dead. You want to know what He struck them dead for? Let's just read. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. There was a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, 
wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon his, and upon as many as heard these things. What if the Lord were to go through our churches today and strike us down for lying and for covetousness? How many people would still be here? I would rather pastor, just listen to me right now. I would rather pastor the unbiblically married couple who show up, pray up, and praise up rather than the people who show up spotless and clean, us clean sinners. We got our marriage straight. But to hate the preacher, to hate the deacons, to hate everybody in the congregation, they do nothing but gripe, grumble, and complain, and they're always a problem. Which group do you want, Pastor? Which group do you want to be around? Because the Bible does not say that the root of divorce and remarriage shall spring up and whereby defile many. It says the root of bitterness shall spring up and defile many. You realize that things like bitterness and griping and lying are a far worse crime in your life than a lot of other things we imagine. And they're a far greater detriment to the church than a lot of things we've imagined. When God said He's going to throw all liars in the lake of fire, He's going to throw them there because He said about the devil, He is a liar and the father of it. It is a charge against the character and holiness of God Himself. So when you think, well, Abraham just had everything laid out. Everything was just fine with Abraham. God blessed Abraham because he was just such an upright and perfect individual. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had a problem telling the truth. It was a detriment to Abraham. It was a detriment to Isaac. It was a detriment to Jacob. And it will be a detriment to you. But have you ever noticed how easy it is to tell a lie. Somebody says, well, if you, if you want to know the truth, ask a child. We've often heard that, haven't we? If you want to know the truth, ask a child. I would like to amend that statement by saying, if you want to know the truth, ask a child who won't be in, t- in trouble for telling the truth. Because if they think they're going to be in trouble for telling the truth, they will come up with some of the most off-the-wall, colorful illustrations you've ever heard in your life. No, not my children. Yes, your children. They often say that preachers' children are the worst children there are. And I agree because they play with the deacon's children. Uh, Here's a reality. Some or all of us fit this category. Just, just be honest. Be honest with yourself. I find it interesting in life 
the things that people are ashamed of. In the world today, they're teaching you, have no shame. Don't be embarrassed about anything. Just be true to yourself. Man is in such a deplorable mess. They, they tell you, just follow your heart. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture doesn't say follow your heart. The Scripture says that the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. The Scripture says that the wicked in their life seek nothing but to follow and please their heart. You're not to follow your heart. You are to recognize from the Scripture that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And if God has borne you again, you are not to follow your heart. You are to lead your heart. Your earthly, fleshy heart. You are to lead it and you are to instruct it. So I don't care what problem you're having at home. Well, I guess one thing that hits home more than anything is between the husband and the wife. If I didn't have any other problem I could talk about in the home, I know I could talk about between the husband and the wife, right? The intimacy between the husband and the wife. The romance between the husband and the wife. Uh, he hasn't told me in 10 years that he loves me. Well, I told you the day we got married, I love you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. Uh, there may be, I don't care what problem you have, I don't care what lack of intimacy you have, what lack between the relationship you have, your heart may look at somebody that you're not married to in your office, in your community, your next door neighbor, and think, well, if I just had that, I'd be a whole lot better. Thrilled me two weeks ago. Sister Mary was here. She said, my, my 87-year-old sister said, isn't Brother Duke's just so, hadn't he just got so handsome? I turned to my wife and said, see there? You better watch yourself. I got it with the ladies in the 80s. And she looked at me and she said, they like you because they don't live with you. The grass may be greener on the other side, but they may also be using a different fertilizer too. Their water bill may be a whole lot higher too. And it also may, ask, may be astroturf. It may be fake grass on the other side. We have to be careful in our own homes, in our own lives, to be deceived by the devil of thinking what we need is somewhere else. What Abraham needed was not somewhere else. What Abraham needed was the Lord. He had it and sometimes couldn't see it. What Abraham needed was to wait patiently upon the Lord. He had it and he couldn't see it. Aren't you glad that the same God who called Abraham my friend is your God. Where would you be if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was not your God? I think we'd be in a deplorable mess. We don't need to think that the people of the Bible were so blessed because they were so better than us. The people of the Bible were blessed because God is good and God blesses people. And the last time I checked, you're a people too. God has and can bless you. Thank you all for your real good and 
patient attention to you.